All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 27. We're going to look at the last two verses of that chapter and then chapter 28. So Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. The topic we're going to find there, Moses describes the unique garments of the high priest's wardrobe. The title of our message, Close Encounters of the Priestly Kind. It's, it's a hobby, all right? I drink coffee and I come up with titles. There are worse things to do. Father, thank you for this word. Once again, Lord, we're uh, humbled to be able to read uh, your text, to, to know something more about your dealings with your ancient people, Israel, and the priesthood. And so we want to get all that right, but we also want to know how it applies to our lives today. So we don't want to miss anything, Lord, but we certainly need an application. And so do that by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever wonder how many and which emoji are being used on Twitter at any given moment? Anybody ever worry about that? Apparently a lot of people do, and when they do, they consult EmojiTracker.com. It's a screen full of pictograms and numbers that show you all the emoji with live updating of their numbers. Please wait to visit the site and use caution when you do. The webpage opens with a warning that it could trigger epilepsy. It, when you go there, even if you don't have epilepsy, you feel like you do. It's crazy. The word emoji originates from the Japanese. I'm told E is picture and moji is character. English experts are split as to the plural form of emoji. Some say it's emojis with an S. Others say there's no need to add the S at the end. And so I've adopted that because it just sounds cooler to talk about various emoji. Fully 92% of all people online use emoji now, and one-third of them do so daily. On Instagram, nearly half of the posts contain emoji. They're so popular that they're killing off NetSpeak. How is your NetSpeak? See if you know the meaning of these NetSpeak abbreviations. LOL. OMG. Probably shouldn't use that. OMW. IDK. JK. GTG. This is one you do need to know. PAW. Parents are watching. Kids have their own kind of thing that I couldn't get into. But anyway, one article made a bold statement about emoji claiming, and I quote, in essence, we're watching the birth of a new type of language. I hope nobody finds that 100 years from now and figures out what we were all about. But anyway, we've always communicated in pictures. It can be more effective than words, especially when you're traveling in a foreign country and need to figure out which bathroom is yours. God often uses pictures to communicate spiritual truth. Nowhere is that more true than in the Old Testament tabernacle we're discussing in Exodus. We're told that the tabernacle was, and I quote, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. And so it, it, it is intended to be a picture. Commenting on this, Dr. J. Vernon McGee writes, The tabernacle is God's storybook with pictures for babes in Christ. Now, our text today describes the garments of the priests who served in the tabernacle, and especially those of the high priest. It's all a picture of Jesus, of course. 
the high priest pictures Jesus, our great high priest. We know it does because we read in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. And the priests picture us as we serve with the Lord. We know that because we read in Revelation 1.6, And Jesus has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Keeping all that in mind, I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, what does the high priest reveal to you about Jesus? And number two, what do the priests reveal to you about you? So let's take a look at the high priest first, uh, beginning in chapter 27. Thinking of the high priest wardrobe, I remember that my entire high school wardrobe consisted of white pocket t-shirts and button fly Levi 501 jeans. Day in, day out, Southern California, no matter the weather, that's what I wore. Uh, can't remember if I had more than one pair of jeans. I may not have. I, I, it, it was, you know, you're young. Boots and a handmade fabric belt filled out my wardrobe besides socks, underwear, and a light jacket. The high priests of Israel dressed way better, but their wardrobe wasn't very diverse. It consisted of only a few items. If you're paying attention, you know that we didn't discuss the last two verses of chapter 27 in our previous study, so let's do that. They form a nice segue from the ministry of the tabernacle to the priests who actually do the ministry because it talks about one of their important duties. And in verse 20 it says, You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations uh, on behalf of the children of Israel. Uh, So one of the duties of the priests was to be certain that the menorah in the holy place burned continually, and by that they meant all night from evening until morning. They depended on a steady supply of oil from the worshipers who visited the tabernacle. Without the priests, who were the only ones allowed in the holy place, there'd be no light. But without the people bringing their offerings of oil, there would be no light either. All of us have our part serving God. Together, we reveal him to those who are living in spiritual darkness. Uh, And so you may think that your part is tiny, minuscule, not important, uh, but that's not true. Everything contributes to uh, the being a light to a dark place, and, and that's that's what a Christian is. We want to be a, a the light of the world uh, in in Jesus fashion. And so, whatever it is you think you do, uh, do it uh, as unto the Lord, and together we will be a great testimony for Him. Verse one of chapter twenty-eight. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. And Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants from the tribe of Levi served as priests. All priests were Levites. Not all Levites were priests. Only the sons of Aaron were accepted as priests to actually serve in the sanctuary, making sacrifices, keeping the lamp lit, replacing the bread, and so forth. Levites not descended from Aaron were assigned to all the other duties of the tabernacle, such as packing it up and moving it when the Lord directed them to a new site. Verse 3, So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. Giftedness needed the spirit of wisdom, 
in order for an artisan to serve the Lord. It's best to dedicate any gifts, or we might say talents, to the Lord, to let Him use them for His glory. Chances are you won't be recognized or as famous as you could be in the world. You won't win the world's awards, but you'll garner for yourself rewards in eternity. I mean, think of some of the tremendously talented Christians uh, and Christian artists, and they just, they just don't really break through to the other side. They don't make the crossover very good. There's an old saying that uh, it's tough to cross over because they don't get to bring the cross over with them. If you think of some crossover artists that quit singing about Jesus or quit acting about Jesus and stuff in order to be more famous. And so you're just not probably not going to win the world's awards, uh, but that's not what you're looking for. Uh, and so we need the Spirit of God to uh, anoint and uh, accompany our talents in order for them to be really valuable and do the work that they can do for eternity. Verse 4, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as a priest. In total, there would be eight items in the high priest's wardrobe, the six we just mentioned, plus a crown and an undergarment called trousers that we'll get to in verse 42. Here's a good way of organizing the wardrobe of the priests. There was the high priest's uniform. This consisted of the eight garments called by some the golden garments. And there was the uniform of the regular priests. These were four garments, tunic, trousers, turban, and sash. These were called the white garments. Now Moses started by describing the ephod and beginning in verse 5. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so shall it be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and six on the other stone in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stone, uh, stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. So you can think of the ephod as an apron worn over the tunic, although longer than a normal apron. It was almost full length, but not quite. Two stones were fixed in settings of gold on the ephod on the high priest's uh, shoulders, one on the right, one on the left, obviously. The names of the tribes of Israel were engraved upon these two stones. Next, there was a breastplate. You shall make, verse 15, the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stone in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a hyacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. 
shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings, which are on the ends of the breastplate, and the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. And two other rings of gold you shall make, and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards the front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod, using a blue cord, so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod, and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Now, even I, when I'm reading through that, think, are you kidding me? Do we really need to read this? Uh, Is this really important to us as New Testament Christians? All I can say is that this is one of the largest subjects in the Old Testament. God goes over and over and over this detail, and then he'll go over it again. So if you think we're through with this, we're going to get a lot of this again at the tail end of Exodus. And uh, apparently this is super important stuff to God. And if you keep in mind that this is God's picture language, that he is depicting things through it that we could otherwise uh, maybe get lost trying to figure out, uh, it will help you. Uh, The breastplate was a square-shaped fabric garment worn on the chest over the heart, set with four rows of small square stones in settings of knitted or braided gold. Each row contained three stones, 12 stones, one stone representing each of the 12 tribes. The name of the corresponding tribe was engraved on each stone. Verse 30, you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, as you go on in the Old Testament and read about the Urim and Thummim, you find out it was an oracle-like aspect of the breastplate by which you could ask God a question and receive an answer. No one knows exactly what the Urim and Thummim were or how it or they operated. No one knows. There's all kinds of ideas, uh, you know, about what they were. Uh, But somehow God was able to communicate through them his will when questions were asked. I like this explanation from the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Uh, And again, this isn't biblical necessarily, but from a lot of their research and study, this is their conclusion. They say, according to most opinions, the expression Urim and Thummim actually refers not to the breastplate itself, but to the mystical divine name of God, which was written on a piece of parchment and inserted into a flap of the garment. The presence of the name facilitated the uh, reception of divine guidance through the shining of specific letters on the stones. Now, again... I have no idea if that's how it worked, but the idea is that because the priest carried the, the name of God with him, when they'd ask a question, different letters would shine on the different stones that he was wearing that were engraved, and it would spell out his will. Uh, so maybe, maybe not, but somehow God supernaturally directed the high priest using the Urim and Thummim. And so verse 31, you shall make a robe of the ephod of all blue. There should be an opening for the head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening like the opening in a coat of mail so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem and bells of gold between them all around. 
a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be when Aaron, uh, upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. Now, according to the opinion of most scholars, the robe was a closed garment, seamlessly woven from one piece of fabric, slipped on over the head. It was worn over a tunic. The tunic was longer than the robe by a hand breadth, so it was visible underneath the robe at the bottom. The opening at the neck was round. The garment hung down in front and in back, and its length extended all the way down. And there was a difference of opinion as to whether there were sleeves or not. Decorative pomegranates made of sky blue, dark red, and crimson dyed wool were attached to the lower hem of the robe. These pomegranates were actually hollow spheres of fabric in the shape of pomegranates. Find a debate among Jews as to whether there were 36, 70, or 72 pomegranates in all. I've told you before that even with this extensive description of things, uh, there's still room for artistic expression. Now, the verse tells us that these pomegranates were interspersed with golden bells. You've probably heard it said that the bells were so that you could hear the high priest while he ministered and that he had a rope tied around his ankle so that should the sound of the bell cease because God struck him dead, the regular priest could haul him out without entering and likewise being struck dead. And so you have this picture of the high priest behind the veil, this rope, and everybody listening. I haven't heard a bell for a while. We better yank that guy out. In fact, I haven't heard a bell, but I did hear a thud. And so that's a common teaching. Now, two problems. I'm not saying that's not true, but there are a couple of problems with that. One, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Uh, Josephus doesn't even mention that, the Jewish historian. It's a later tradition that you read in Jewish literature. And second, the high priest was only allowed in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he dressed down wearing the outfit of a regular priest. And so he didn't have on him this robe with the pomegranates and the bells. Uh, And so it's doubtful that this is anything more than just a legend uh, that has snuck into Bible study. You know, there's a lot of things Bible teachers tell you uh, that they heard from another Bible teacher and they heard from another Bible teacher and they haven't actually researched it. I've been guilty of that once (laughs) or twice. I've probably told you, Pastor Gene, I have it in my margin here. Pastor Gene said there was a rope attached to the high priest's leg. And so uh, when I can correct myself, I do. So just don't get caught up in that one. Probably not true. Uh, Verse 36, you shall also make a plate, and this is a crown of pure gold, and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord, and it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's head, forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now the engraved plate saying holiness to the Lord is a kind of crown worn with a turban. Turban was placed on the priest's head in such a way that a space was left between it and the crown upon his forehead. And then, verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread, you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. The tunic clung close to the body and extended from the priest's neck down to the feet just above the heels. Each one was tailored according to their specific height and weight, 
And as it was one piece, it was donned by placing it over the head. So that's, in a nutshell, the wardrobe of the high priest, except for the trousers he wore under all of this that are mentioned in the next set of verses in conjunction with the white garments of the regular priests. Every color, every clasp, every stone, every thread points in some or many ways to Jesus. For example, obviously the stones on the shoulders with the names of the 12 tribes engraved on them picture the Lord's strength in carrying the burdens of his people. Looking at the picture of the high priest, you're encouraged to cast all of your care upon the Lord. The stones on the breastplate remind you that Jesus has you on his heart. He calls you by name and he loves you with an everlasting love. If you want to get deep, deep, deep into every little symbol, uh, Lewis Talbot has a book called Christ in the Tabernacle. A.W. Pink has a book, uh, Gleanings in Exodus. And you, you'll just read until you're satiated with all these different types and symbols and all. I want to take a big picture view. What is it we can immediately see by looking at the high priest? Well, we see it says, holy garments for glory and for beauty. Uh, that expression for glory and beauty is going to re be repeated in verse 40, talking about the regular priests. I find this interesting, and if I think about it for a moment, holiness, glory, and beauty are not intrinsic qualities in Aaron or any of his descendants. You never looked at anyone, priest or not, and described them using those three words. They, they don't really fit a human being. The high priest was not holy, he had to offer sacrifice for himself before he could even represent the nation. He was just as much a sinner as the next guy, so much so that he might be struck dead while performing his ministry. Whether he had a rope on or not, he could be struck dead. Glory is obviously something that belongs to God alone. The glory of God was pre uh, present in the Holy of Holies, not in the high priest. The high priest could only go in there once a year. Beauty certainly isn't descriptive of the man either. Even if you could say he was handsome, beautiful even, he didn't personify beauty. The Hebrew word translated beauty could also be translated majesty. It's a word describing sovereignty. God alone was to be their king, not the high priest. And so these words are not really appropriate to the high priest. The high priest is like anyone else except for his garments, the special garments he wore helped you look beyond him to see holiness and glory and beauty. And so in a very real sense, you looked past him to a mere man, as a mere man to a future final priest who would be actually holy and in whom you beheld God's glory, one who was altogether beautiful, one who personifies beauty and who would reign forever as king. Now, I'm not saying that every Jew understood this immediately, or that it was easy to parse out. We have hindsight, of course, and we know about Jesus, our great high priest. But knowing that, you can look at this and say, hey, when I see garment, uh, this individual and he's described as holy, glorious, and beautiful, I'm not really looking at Aaron. I'm looking at what God has done to Aaron. He's clothed him in a certain way so that he can approach uh, God. And would to God there'd be someone who actually was uh, holy, and glorious and beautiful. And that one is Jesus. He's the only man that has ever lived a completely holy life. Hebrews 7.26 describes him saying he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
The Apostle John tells us that the disciples beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As to beauty, physically Jesus was plain, but remembering that this word can mean majesty, Jesus definitely is the sovereign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so these garments clothing the high priest are a picture of Jesus, our great high priest. The incredible garments disguised the high priest as men and made them look, spiritually speaking, more like Jesus. Here's a little bit deeper insight along those same lines. When you looked at the high priest, you saw a man who had been clothed by God in order to actually annually rather atone for sin. Jesus would be clothed with humanity. He would be the God-man who alone could be both priest and sacrifice. We're told in the New Testament, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And so as the Lord prepared garments for the high priest that annually he could atone for sin, he prepared a body for Jesus, the God-man, so that he could actually atone for sin. And so there's a lot of beautiful picture symbolism in all this. So go ahead and meditate on all the aspects of the high priest's garments, all the colors, all the clasps, all the stones. But first, see the holiness and the glory and the beauty that he pictured until the coming of Jesus to offer himself as the final sacrifice for sin who would enter the heavenly tabernacle as our great high priest. Now, what do the priests reveal to you about you? Well, there were a lot of regular priests, and so let's see what they picture. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 9, we're told, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In Revelation 1, 6, Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God. And so you should see yourself in these regular priests. They wore four garments all year round, turban, sash, tunic, and trousers. Those are now briefly described for you, beginning in verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. So let's talk tunic first. Last study, we spent a great deal of time describing salvation in terms of spiritual clothing. Specifically, we said that at the cross, Jesus took upon himself your filthy garments that represent your sin, and in their place gave you his perfect robe of righteousness. Uh, that exchange is a picture of salvation. And so the tunic of the regular priest pictures imputed righteousness or God declaring you righteous. It is your garment of salvation, spiritually speaking, for having trusted Jesus Christ. The sash is a belt that can function as a girdle. Now, since the 20th century, we think of a girdle as something to flatten our stomach and make us more shapely. At least the girdle I wear, that's what I... <laughs> cinch that puppy up. There's that great, uh, I guess it's a corset in Gone with the Wind. Is that the proper term? Remember, there's that great scene where Scarlett O'Hara is being, you know, tied up and she can hardly breathe, you know, and stuff because she gets her waist down to about 12 inches or something like that. But so when we hear girdle, we, we think of this kind of shapely undergarment. But in those days, before then, girdles functioned to hold up your tunic so you could bend to perform tasks more easily. And so it is okay to walk around in a tunic that reached down to your ankles, uh, but if you wanted to do something, you had to yank that thing up and sash it so that you could move around. And so the sash is a belt that can function as a girdle in that sense. The sash of the regular priest pictures you serving the Lord. 
Uh, you had to, many times in the Bible it says, gird yourself up. And that's the idea. Spiritually speaking, you are to gird yourself up and serve the Lord. They also wore hats or a turban. Turban comes from a word whose root is to wrap. So we're thinking about a head covering that's wrapped around, around and around. According to one historical researcher, during the time of Jesus, Jewish teachers would always have their heads covered in public as a sign of righteous reverence. They wore the sudarium, white linen cloth wound around the head as a turban with the ends of it falling down over the neck. Common people sometimes wore a cloth with a band or just a band in warm months. Today, religious Jews wear the yarmulke or the kippah in Hebrew because it is believed by covering your head during prayer, you show respect for God. Uh, you, you know, we have that debate here in the church all the time. Not, not, I don't mean our church necessarily, but in the church at large as to whether guys should take their hats off when they come into uh, service or prayer. I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but uh, I'll talk to you guys afterward. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we uh, I don't want to use this expression the wrong way, but we don't care. Uh, that's, a, that's a personal issue, individual issue. But some churches, that, it's a big deal. You know that, right? Uh, they'll, they have ushers that will come to you and, and help you take your hat off. Uh, it, it, you know, we, we've decided we don't want any part of that, you know. Uh, just, it's fine. Hats are not an issue. They're, they're not a hill we want to die on and stuff. But, so the hat uh, describes uh, the idea of an authority over you. That's the idea. And so uh, the turban that the, high, that the priest wore uh, pictures you submitted to Jesus having him as the authority over you. And this is, a, you know, everybody, oh yeah, that's right. But this is a big deal. I could spend all morning talking about this. Having Jesus as your authority means whatever he says in his word, you do. And this would solve 90% of the marriage problems and destroy most divorces. Uh, if, if people would just do what Jesus said to do. And the truth of the matter is, once a couple gets to that point, Jesus is no longer the authority in their life. They've taken the authority back from him because they don't want to be unhappy or because they found someone else or for what, uh, whatever myriad of reasons. If we would always keep Jesus as our authority, we can go to the word together. What does the word say? I don't like it, but I have to do it. And I can do it because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to get back to that more simplistic, not so touchy-feely way of being a Christian. You know, a lot of, I think you, you don't, I think you think I'm joking sometimes when I say to people in counseling, I don't care. When they say, I want to be happy, I say, I don't care about your personal happiness, not right now. I care about your personal obedience. And I know that happiness will come from that later on. So if happiness if, if I cared about happiness, I wouldn't be here. Somebody else would be talking to you. You think this makes me happy? <laughs> Whoa, yeah, no, more marriage counseling. Yeah, bring it on. There's nothing. Yeah, have you ever counseled anybody? Yeah, you have. In, in, even in a, a quick kind of a way. Marriage counseling, man, it, it, it's made me an old man. It's, you know, I, well, whatever. <laughs> I think you get the point. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, in verse 40, uh, 41, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them, consecrate them, sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. They were anointed with oil, representing God the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. We need his continual filling, which we sometimes refer to as his anointing. 
we have a lot of different terminology for the Holy Spirit, some of it more mystical than others. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I can go on being filled with Him, depending upon Him, led by Him, uh, and all of that. And so the question becomes, am I being led by the Spirit, or am I serving the Lord in the energy of my own flesh? Paul the Apostle asked the Galatians, actually, he kind of reproved them. He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the works of the flesh? Uh, their situation was that Judaizing teachers were coming in and saying, you got a great start here on Christianity by being born again, but you really need to be circumcised and keep the Jewish laws in order to be truly saved. Uh, and, and, you know, so Paul came along and said, no, that's bogus. You started in the Spirit, you continue in the Spirit. And, and so that comes to us as not wanting to do things in the energy of our flesh, waiting on the Lord, being directed by the Lord. Good questions to ask. Consecrated is from a word that means to fill the hand, such as with offerings. And so you come with a full hand is the idea. It's a word that summarizes the idea, I should offer myself a living sacrifice to Jesus. And then sanctify is the progress I'm to make in becoming more like Jesus on a daily basis. And so what I see in these priests is that I need to be uh, yielded to the Spirit who indwells me, Uh, believing that God empowers me to do his will, whatever it is. I need to come to him with everything that I have and offer it to him as a living sacrifice and see daily progress in my walk as I am sanctified. That they may minister. And so ultimately, am I, in that sense, really serving the Lord in the place where he has put me? Verse 42 And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness, so they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. It shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near to altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Most of the sources I consulted indicate it was common in pagan religions for the priests to serve naked. It makes sense since so many of the pagan rituals were sexual in nature. And so it sounds weird uh, to us, but this is what was going on. Now, there was no going commando for the regular priests. We ought, therefore, to keep ourselves from sexual sin. The Apostle Paul said this to the Thessalonians, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And and so uh, Paul, who had only spent a few weeks in Thessalonica but established this thriving church, he says, if you want to know the will of God, this is the first thing I'm going to talk to you about. The first thing you need to know about God's will is that you do not engage in sexual immorality. Now, probably because, it was the, uh, because of the permissive culture in Thessalonica, Paul considered that to be priority one. Uh, he, he knew how easily that could get the church off track and what a danger that was with all the pagan influences. When you had, you know, you're, you're a believer in Thessalonica, you're a Gentile who yesterday went to a church service where the priest was naked and was offering animal sacrifices to some demon. And so Paul says, yeah, we might want to be careful about our sexuality. And we might want to get a handle on that so that we're not drawn off into the world. Uh, we certainly live in a permissive culture. I, I, you know, I don't think I have to prove that. Um, it, it just is. Sexual sin is abounding. 
it probably ought to be priority one for us. And so we should be certain our spiritual trousers are in place, as it were, and that we are not engaging in sexual sin as the Bible defines it. So the regular priests were also described in terms of glory and beauty. When folks look at you and me, they shouldn't see us. They should see Jesus in us, his holiness, his glory, his beauty. Now, that's obviously something that has to happen supernaturally. I can't, you know, try and do the, uh, you know, I can't just, I'm going to be holy right now and suddenly turn into Joe Holy. I mean, you know, people need to just, as we walk with the Lord, they need to see these uh, qualities in our life, and they can as we yield ourselves to the Lord. The Apostle Paul spoke of us as living letters. He said we are known and read by everyone. You're being read. And even before you say anything, without using any words, you're giving people a picture of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, if, it's hard to wrap your head around that. You think, well, what does that even mean? How do people look at me and get a picture of what it means to be a Christian? But Paul says they do. You're a living letter known and read by all men. And that has to do not just with your words. All of us can, you know, explain the gospel. But we have to be walking out the gospel. And in that sense, uh, giving a picture of what it means to be Jesus. Amen.